Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Charlie Schufeld, President and CEO of Elk Grange Royalties, an NGP royalty partners backed mineral shop that was formed in April 2020 and is currently managing a portfolio of more than 30,000 net royalty acres with interests in over 5,000 horizontal wells across the Permian, Anadarko, Haynesville, and DJ Basins. During the episode, Charlie walks through Elk Range's growth strategy as they look to continue acquiring developed minerals across the core basins in their portfolio, including a recent transaction they closed of over 2,000 net royalty acres in the core of the Permian Basin. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Charlie had to say. Charlie, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the podcast. I've been trying to get you on here since Elk Range was formed Q1 last year, so plenty to talk about now. I'm glad to finally have you on. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate you having me. And um, I was waiting until we'd gotten a few more things done so I could come on and have a lot to talk about. No, no, you bet. You bet. So you're relatively new to the mineral space. So for those who don't know you personally, let's give them some context where you grew up. You went to Stanford, I see. I'm wondering if you were familiar at all with MAP and the early involvement of Jane Woodward and and uh and stanford at all or if that's completely separate worlds but how'd you get into finance how'd you get to oil and gas and we'll walk through your career so i want over to you to give everyone some background all right uh will help keep me on track so i answer all your questions there but um yeah, i grew up in atlanta georgia and went off to school at stanford if you'd asked me when i was an undergrad if i'd end up in finance or let alone end up in the oil and gas world i would have told you no so it's funny how careers take a lot of twists and turns, but you always end up in a good place, or at least I have. When I was at Stanford, I did not get exposed to MAP and Jane Woodward and all the really cool stuff that she's done. Post Stanford, I've gotten very involved with the uh, School of Earth there and sit on an advisory board at the School of Earth and help them invest some capital and minerals. So gotten to hear a lot about her history there and the history of uh, what that school has done in the minerals and oil and gas space. So it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, you spend time on that campus as an undergrad and people don't talk a lot about oil and gas, but there's a pretty rich history of, of academic work around oil and gas that's been done at Stanford. Yeah, I, I'd love for you to expand upon that because there is a, a common misconception, you know, MAP as a concept was founded by Jane, but everyone thinks that it was Stanford who backed it. And I believe Stanford was an early LP, but a minority one at that. And there was a, a much broader capital stack over time. Um, but there's a lot of people think because Jane's involvement and, and her being on the board uh, throughout the years that that it was Stanford's endowment fund. And that's actually not 100% accurate. But so you're, you're now involved with Stanford Earth, which I, I'm not familiar with. I would love a little background there. Just a little history lesson for everyone, I think would be fascinating. You probably have to go to Jane for the full history, but I can share the, the few pieces that I know. Back in 2016, I got involved with something called the Petroleum Investments Committee. And what that is, is it's a group of professionals in the oil and gas business that have an affiliation with Stanford who manage a pool of capital that started as uh, minerals that were given to the school of, it's had a few names, it's called Stanford Earth today, but it encompasses earth systems, that's geology, petroleum engineering, and you know a lot of other disciplines. 
so dating back, I think to the fifties, there was a, I think, you know, a small gift of minerals in the Permian and elsewhere um, that when I got involved in 2016, had grown to about a $50 million portfolio. And that's managed by a volunteer group that invests that these days, primarily in other um, mineral investment partnerships. And that uh, whole pool of money had gone dormant at some point between 1950 and uh, I think the early 90s. And Jane and another Stanford professor, Warren Court, had uncovered that and really brought that back to life. And my understanding, I think this is true, but again, you'll have to talk to some people who were there to know the, the full story is that, you know, uncovering that was kind of some of the inspiration for what Jane went on and built it at MAP. And, you know, as far as I know, that was the first institutional fund in the mineral space. They, they really got some things right early on. Um, so it's been interesting to have an opportunity to, to study what they did through my involvement at Stanford. Hey guys, next Wednesday, October 13th, Minerals and Royalties Council will be hosting our Northam Royalties Assembly and Minerals and Royalties Awards Dinner. We're gonna have a great turnout, over 300 execs, tons of fun, lots of deal making. If you're not signed up, you know what to do. Drop me an email at tim.powell at energycouncil.com. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't have a, a super strong relationship with Matt, but I have spoken with them in the last six to 12 months and know they're getting back into oil and gas minerals and investigating strategies. I know that they took a bit of a hiatus there in terms of active deployment and did a lot in the royalties space for renewables, as well as other renewables investments and made a large exit at the end of 2019 or are now looking back at oil and gas, which, which is good to have a, a household name like that back in the game. But anyways, I digress. So you went to Stanford finance degree or finance focus. What was the, what was the aim in undergrad? Yeah, I, I studied a few things, but came out with a major in economics and a minor in computer science and uh, left kind of in the, in the middle of the technology boom in the early 2000s, uh, thinking that uh, I would do something in technology in the Bay Area uh, and knowing that, you know, the, the finance guys control a lot of what happens, uh, went into the investment banking world, helping tech companies and biotech companies raise venture capital money. And if you'd asked me at that point, I thought that's what I was going to do forever. But through that, that role in banking, got involved with some energy companies, did some work with some hedge funds to help them invest uh, in what was called a pipe transaction at the time. And it was a, a form of private investment in a public equity, which as it's the hedge fund world was growing rapidly, but came a way for those guys to put a lot of money to work quickly and uh, was a great business. So this was mid 2000s, roughly? Yeah, and that's right. you're at Bank of America. Okay, so that was how you transitioned. And then I'm not personally familiar with, with HBK Capital Management, but you spent close to seven years there. And that was purely energy focused, correct? I joined that firm. Um, and that's really what brought me to Dallas, because I'd done a number of pipe transactions with them. And they were looking for someone to come help lead that strategy. And HBK, that firm, I think, turns 30 years old here in a few weeks. So it was really one of the early hedge funds. And, you know, it was a, it was a great place to learn. Um, I joined them as a generalist, but pretty quickly got exposed to a lot of oil and gas opportunities. And that's really what, um, you know, got my interest in the business really going. Had the opportunity to make some private investments and some oil and gas companies pre-IPO in 2006, you know, when we were talking about double digit gas prices. And, you know, that at the end of the day, I found that I really liked the oil and gas business. Uh, I kind of liked the hedge fund business, 
but it, you know, I, I didn't want to be a trader. Uh, I wanted to be out there, you know, building companies, you know, working directly with management teams. Unfortunately, in the hedge fund world, you end up in somewhat of an adversarial position with management teams from time to time. And that's just not my personality. So HPK was a great training ground, you know, loved working at that place. I uh, met a lot of great people, learned a lot, and it really set me up to go on and uh, and do more, you know, in the oil and gas business and in finance. So that was, you know, coming out of there in 2013, you know, we were in a high oil and gas price environment, lots of rigs running, but, you know, lots of inventory and saw this opportunity to build a business around helping companies accelerate that inventory by providing them financing in the form of a joint, drilling joint venture. So that was you know, really that, that thesis that led me to IOG when we founded that in 2014. Now, the parallel I'd like to draw is that you, uh, you know, in your entrepreneurial phase of starting IOG and then launching Elk Range, they were both really in the midst of downturns. So I'm sure the business plan w- was chalked up on the whiteboard before the Thanksgiving Day surprise in 2014. And so that was probably a bit of a, a tough market to launch in. But uh, Elk Range launched in April 2020. Again, I'm assuming you guys didn't put that whole story together in a month and a half, but COVID, oil price war, I mean, it didn't get any murkier than April 2020 uh, in terms of visibility on what the world would look like. So would love a little insight on that. I mean, that's two for two on starting companies and downturns, and now you get to ride the wave up, right? Uh, would love some hindsight perspective on that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say I've got really great opportunist, opportunistic timing, but uh, unfortunately, I think if, if you see me starting to think about starting a new venture, you should go short oil because it means there's a, some sort of crash approaching. But yeah, you know, that with IOG, what was great is this is just a capital hungry business from the working interest perspective. So whether prices are high or prices are low, operators need capital to drill wells. And so that was that was a great opportunity there. You know, it was a little bit different in starting Elk Range in that you know, I had had an interest in the royalty space for quite some time. Actually, within IOG, I had thought about trying to build out a separate royalty strategy to both buy ahead of the drill bit, but also just, you know, enhance what we could do by having a minerals and royalties strategy alongside the working interest strategy. That never materialized, but I maintained my interest in the space. And when I started talking to NGP and learning their plans to raise a dedicated fund that was solely focused on minerals and royalties, it really resonated for me and that it solved a lot of the issues that I saw that traditional private equity would have with minerals and royalties. And that, you know, you needed, you needed a vehicle that really lined up duration wise with the product, you know, and, you know, traditional private equity, you can, you know, build and exit these businesses in two to three years. If you do it right, that's much harder to do in the minerals and royalty space because you just control a lot less. And the folks at MAP got that right early on. I think some of their funds have had a 30-year life. So, you know, having seen that example and then seen some of the challenges that, that some of the traditional private equity-backed mineral strategies have had, you know, it really connected with me that, you know, hey, this, this is going to be something different, raising a fund that's dedicated to this product and it's designed around minerals and royalties. And, um, you know, to me, that was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up to, to be part of that. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. When I talked to the NGP guys in the past, they just said there was a lot of deal flow that their respective management teams were passing up on because they were more developed. And there was also an appetite from their LP universe to 
participate in these deals. And so raising a dedicated fund was, was kind of a win-win. And, and it's, I think, been a real innovation within the mineral space because now private equity can, can play in a totally different way. I think in the consolidation phase where you can go out and buy ahead of the drill bit and do it with traditional PE and build up something and time it and, and look to, to flip it. Those days are largely gone with private equity cost of capital. I don't think you can really do the traditional ground game anymore. Um, and so NGP royalty funds structure and lockup period and, and cost of capital does enable you to compete. And we've seen some positive success stories. You know, your brother and uh, Darren Zanovich at Mesa just closed a big deal with NGP royalty partners with, with this structure. So I think it's great. Did you know, so I know Clint was with a prior NGP portfolio company. Were you guys friends or how did you get the band together for Elk Range and how did it all really materialize? So clearly you had your eye on minerals and were trying to find a way to play the space and it looked like the stars aligned with NGP, but how did the rest of it come together? Yeah. So I'd known Clint for a long time, tried to do some deals with him, never been successful, but we'd always gotten along real well. You know, he had worked with NGP a lot over the years, early iterations of CH4 and most recently in Castell. And then I'd known the NGP folks from trying to do drilling JVs with some of their portfolio companies. And then, you know, we're Dallas is a small community at the end of the day. And, you know, we got kids in school together. So, you know, like I, I had a lot of comfort going to work with them and, um, you know, I, I really liked the way they approached the business and, you know, I've done a lot of things in the business. I've never been a landman. And so when they proposed their idea to, uh, that Clint and I should get linked up, that was just perfect. Cause you know, I'd, I'd always enjoyed working with him and to have someone like Clint, who's just got an incredible background the numbers of deals he's seen, the number of basins he's been active in. Uh, the guy's just like an encyclopedia of uh, facts about land. And so that was just a great compliment to all the things that I'd done before. Cause you know, in the business at IOG, you know, land wasn't a big part of it. You know, it was really a, a financing structure. There was an engineering component, but, but land never really factored into that business. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. Mineralsoft is Enveris' mineral management platform 
that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enerus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Okay, great. So Elk Range Forms, and you guys have a couple of legacy portfolios that got combined into to your portfolio day one, and you've been adding to that since. So can you give a little history on the Lux and the land run portfolios and, and where they are and, and kind of generic size, if you may, I guess what, what's interesting to me, I think um, you look at traditional private equity and the minerals teams that deployed capital in the last five to six years. And there's always the, you know, traditional private equity, it, it's not the right cost of capital and you got the shot clock on you. And if you don't, get the assets sold or time the market correctly, it doesn't work. And the, the high level discussions that were, ha- were happening is, man, these funds are going to have to be fire sale to the market, right? If, but really what ends up happening is, you know, as a management team, you're just a little bit more under pressure to turn that asset in order to hit your back end incentives. And if you miss that, Really, the private equity fund doesn't need to fire sale it because we haven't seen that. They can harvest it. One of the beautiful things about minerals, unfortunately, it just becomes you know, a model where the management team is no longer incentivized, right? So would you say Elk Range is, is that kind of a mineral management arm of NGP slash you're adding on to it with a PDP strategy? Would love a, a little insight there because you are managing some of the legacy minerals that that they have from past companies. Yeah. So from the start, you know, we wanted to have a pool of capital to deploy that, you know, had had a timeline that made sense for the business where we, you know, you weren't necessarily on that same shot clock. You had a a shot clock, I guess, that that lined up with the the timeline for a mineral and royalty asset. And by that same token, we wanted to build, you know, a company platform to manage those that, that had that longer, longer term horizon. And, you know, that largely means right managing to the right cost structure. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. It's building the right team with the right disciplines, building out the right systems to be able to manage things at scale for, for a long period of time. You know, we're not thinking about buying an asset so that we can turn around and flip it. We're thinking about buying an asset so we can turn around and harvest the cash flows. And that's just a different mindset for how you approach the business. And, you know, and again, how you staff things out and the systems you build out around that. So. That was the way that we had planned to approach things from the very beginning, you know, notwithstanding uh, COVID. Now, you know, COVID accelerated a lot of things for us and that, you know, it, it forced uh, a lot of decisions around consolidation within portfolios. And luckily, you know, we were positioned in a way to, to really help out NGP in that regard. And that, you know, we had a team and a set of systems built out where we could take take on management of Lux minerals, take on management of land run minerals, you know, make the cost of retaining that portfolio very low so that, you know, we can harvest as much cash flow from that as possible. And if we get to a point in the cycle where it makes sense to sell that, great. If it's just a harvest story, like what we're doing with royalty partners, that works as well. So, you know, that that cost structure provides a lot of optionality. And that was a key key part of the strategy from the beginning. Yeah. And in, in private conversations I've had with longer term holders that start start to get bigger in size fund over fund 
you know, they say there's this line that you cross. It's kind of the point of no return where you either become a, you know, a proper minerals company and you build out the staff in the back end, or you, you try to sell stuff down, you try to stay at a smaller size and outsource it. Um, because after a certain point, it's cost, it's cost accretive, right? To just keep adding minerals and you have that infrastructure in place. And so having that, that big portfolio to start out with, I think helps scale is important in the minerals management game and, and you guys are there for sure. And now you're going to continue to grow that. So talk about the after formation, the, the growth strategy, the acquisition criteria, the base and focus. So in, in review, so the Lux portfolio was in the Permian is that Midland basin heavy was it Delaware is a pretty diverse. And then, and then the land run was, uh, a little bit of Permian, I think, but but primarily in a Dargo Basin, right? If you can just do a summary there and then what's been the the growth strategy from a basin perspective? Yeah. So Lux Minerals, it's around 15,000 net royalty acres, entirely Permian, primarily concentrated in the Midland Basin, but with a with a small footprint that matched up with Lux operating in the in the Delaware Basin. And that's that's been a great asset for us to take on in a number of ways. One, it came with some folks that we, you know, some that filled some positions we were looking to fill. So really helped us build out a great team uh, with some additions that came over from Lux Minerals. And you know, just gave us access to a wealth of information about activity in the basin. Um, so that that's been a huge plus. Then land run, you know, that's really an Anadarko position. And so we had not been active in the Anadarko Basin. Uh, we took that portfolio on roughly at the beginning of this year. And again, that's, that's really helped us uh, get up to speed on assets in the Anadarko Basin and start to look at acquisitions there. So, yeah, I mean, from where, you know, we've mostly acquired in the Permian. It's the largest basin, you know, that's active right now, just the biggest opportunity set. So that's, that's why we've been focused there, but certainly not the exclusive focus. So having a presence in other basins has really helped us accelerate that acquisition strategy. And how did you categorize yourselves? Are you a, a ground game PDP buyer? Is there a certain minimum size threshold? You jack of all trades, you know, with aggregators, land brokers, organic stuff, larger marketed packages. How do you, for, you know, how do you go about building up a, a pipeline? Yeah. So I would articulate that we're focused on buying developed minerals. So PDP is certainly a part of that, but it's not exclusively PDP. That might be ducks and permits. Uh, we have not been as focused on the undeveloped side of things. Uh, that just doesn't feature as highly in, in our strategy, but anything with development is certainly a focus for us. Then, you know, we've been a bit of an all of the above strategy. You know, we've got a team that's staffed up to evaluate large packages, and we've found some great opportunity that way. Uh, we've also got systems in place to where we can look at very small deals and evaluate those very quickly as they come in the door to make it profitable to buy things $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 at a time. And what we found is that at different points in time, there's more opportunity at, you know, at one end of that spectrum versus the other. So uh, I would say in Q4, the organic game was really working quite well. We made some very attractive acquisitions. And then you know in Q3 of this year, we made a very large acquisition of a marketing package. So I think it's, it's helpful you know, again, for our kind of broad strategy to be able to be active in, in both ends of the market. And uh, where the base, so you said Permian has been kind of the primary area of activity. 
and we can get into that transaction you guys just recently closed, which is a, a lion's share of the capital you've deployed. You've done quite a bit in the DJ as well. Has that been another focus area? Yeah, so we bought in the Rockies with the majority of that being in the DJ. And you know, the way to frame us up is if there's an NGP portfolio company in the basin, you know, we're probably going to be active in that basin because we're trying to leverage as, you know, as many synergies as possible with, with other areas NGP has been active. No, no, that makes sense. So uh, I guess let's talk about this recent transaction. So it, it was of scale. I know you can't disclose the, uh, the seller or the exact amount, but we'll call it 50 to 100 million bucket size. Would love anything you can disclose because it's been a, a pretty exciting deal market. I think this is a moment in time for the mineral space after a really tough year in the combination of coming out of COVID, rising commodity prices on the gas and the oil side, the formation of shops like yourselves, like Mason Minerals and others who are looking for scalable opportunities with the right cost of capital, the right vintage funds that are starting to mature and be ready to exit. You know, and I think the public's are starting to come back. Viper just did a deal. Freehold has deployed quite a bit of capital. So the public markets are starting to get back in the game. So it's, it's the first time really where the opportunities had shifted more towards the upper side of the market versus the ground game, in my opinion. And so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of good assets out there. Would love a little breakdown on one of the success stories that you guys just were able to get across the line. Yeah, it's been really exciting. You know, when prices started to rise, that's obviously a good thing for everything you own, but you wonder about how it's going to impact you know, your ability to continue to acquire. And I've been pleased to see that the higher prices have really brought out a lot more supply of the AD market. And so, you know, first half of this year, we started focusing on those opportunities. And we're, we're lucky enough to, to dig in on an opportunity that we saw that just checked all the boxes for us. It was of scale. You, you kind of laid out that, that range. And, you know, it, it, was, it was also concentrated in the core areas of the Permian. So, you know, w- we really try to focus on buying in the best rock under the best operators. And I know everyone says that, but, but that's an important feature of our strategy. And, you know, w- we saw that in this package and it really allowed us to sharpen the pencil on it. And I think make a, you know, very compelling bid at the end of the day. And what was a, a complicated deal? I was looking back the other day. From, from teaser in the inbox to deal close, we worked on that thing for about five months. So it was a, uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears shed on, on both sides, but, uh, but hard work and everyone stuck, stuck with it and we got something done. And you know, that, that gave us access to about 2,000 net royalty acres you know, in the core of the uh, Midland and Delaware basins you know, under, under some great kind of uh, household name operators. And you know, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, it's, it was a primarily developed package. It still had some upside. So we weren't just buying PDP. But again, it was, it was really concentrated in value in, in the core of the Midland and Delaware. And so I think the other thing that helped us there is, is we were buying from probably a, a non-traditional owner of minerals and royalties. So you know, they, were, they were ready to sell. And you know, we were there with the currency that everyone likes. You know, we're a cash buyer. You know, we're not we're not trying to get too cute with with structure. You know, we've got got capital raised and ready to put to work, and we find deals at the right price, and and we're you know we can pay up for it. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. 
Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You mentioned non-traditional owner minerals. Uh Correct me if I'm wrong, this was primarily an override asset. Is that correct? Yeah, the majority of it were, were overrides. Yeah, and there, there's a there's a large override asset in the Eagle for right now. Freehold just took down a big portion of that asset, you know, and that's a family office, right? That I believe got a, an override years ago from a large uh, transaction on the EMP side. Do you foresee more and more opportunities like that surfacing? whether it's folks who have carved out overrides from transactions or EMP companies that are carving out overrides for, you know, balance sheet health. Is that, is this going to be a new chunk of the pie for deal flow going forward? Do you foresee, or is it, is it very spotty and opportunistic? I think it'll remain somewhat opportunistic. You know, what comes to mind is when you've got an override, certainly with developed minerals, it's it's a bit more comfortable position than if you're talking undeveloped, uh, but there's a lot of complexity that comes with an override. So you've got to have the right team to really understand and value that. And I think there's a lot of folks that you know have chosen to avoid digging in on those opportunities because of that complexity. We decided that you know it was the right risk reward to dive in on that, and I think that's worked out well for us. But yeah, I think you got to have a lot of other factors going in your favor for an override to be attractive. I mean, it's got to be the right operator. It's got to be in the right rock. And those, those risks that come with complexity have to be mitigated in some form. Is it fair to say for you guys, just going back to the, the scale and the team you built out to manage a, a large portfolio, you had mentioned this recent sizable deal on the Permian being complex. The more wells, the more hair on it is that a better suited package for elk range to be competitive on i mean one if you were to acquire an asset forget aggregate dollar value size if it's got tons of wells and there's lots of diversification in it you're going to be better suited than you know a small lean shop for instance to i would imagine take that down and, and manage it is that 
something that that's kind of come to mind or but really what I'm, I'm getting at here is, you know, part of this having you guys come on is for people to understand what is Elk Range's, you know, acquisition criteria and their bread and butter. Is that something that opportunities that people should bring to your doorstep? Yeah, I think, look, if it's a larger complex package, you know, we're in a good position to be a cash buyer of that and and to, to really do the work, roll up our sleeves and understand what that is. So yeah, I, I do I do think that's a that's a good niche for us. I would emphasize it has to be of, of scale because you know with the complexity it's an investment of time and we want to make sure that you know that that investment of time leads to being able to put the right dollars out the door. No, no, that's fair. One other thing, given you're a finance guy and, and your background in uh structuring, financing, being a banker, would you say as commodity prices rise, both in natural gas, I mean, I think natural gas hit 550 yesterday and oil prices have been up. When you're buying developed minerals, is that price, is that commodity price environment advantageous for a shop like like you guys? Because in terms of locking in hedges and and getting the returns you need and getting those uh distributions day one for going back to investors at attractive rates. Is that, I mean, I imagine it helps for deal making. You know, if someone's buying more undeveloped, do you think it's it's more favorable for someone who is looking for the types of assets you're looking for or the tide rises all boats in, in this scenario? I think there's a bit of the tide rising all boats, but you know, I'd like to think that my time in the hedge fund world has prepared us to be maybe a little bit more sophisticated on hedging strategy and and how to incorporate that again and how we value and did things and um, you know being able to just take advantage of some scale to execute on those transactions there's just you know if you're of a certain size you're really not able to hedge but we've got a broad enough portfolio that that's uh, certainly a big part of how we think about managing the commodity price risk on what we've acquired yeah what is that imaginary line where scale you kind of tipped enough of a scale to to start leveraging hedging strategies. Uh, we're talking AUM or on a particular transaction. I think it's a bit of both, but you know, you have to have a certain amount of base production to really get, you know, the the right pricing in the market on your hedging. And then certainly, you know, having a good base amount of production makes it easier to hedge incremental acquisitions. If you're, if you say there's there's risk around those incremental volumes, um, it's much easier when you're spreading that out across a big production base. So again, for for us, you know, we're probably in the market a couple times a month looking at, at where our hedge portfolio is versus our forecasts, and you know, truing up those hedges to make sure again we're protected where we want to be. No, no, that makes sense. It's just, it's something that comes up more and more. Old colleague of mine, Rob Vai, runs natural resources for Aegis Hedging Solutions. And he said that they've been doing more and more in the mineral space of late. And uh, I just see it, so these larger transactions, the rising commodity prices, it, it's just a way to lock in downside protection. And it, it makes it very, very attractive to get distributions on, on day one, right? And um, yeah be able to be aggressive on, on your underwriting as well. Yeah, I think that, well, so look, we work with Aegis and they've been, they've been a great partner in supporting what we do on the hedging side. But I also think what, what he's referring to is what you're seeing in the mineral space is just becoming more mature. You know, you rewind five years ago and it was very much focused on the undeveloped and, you know, strategies like ours and others, we're focusing on developed minerals because that's, you know, largely what the industry's matured to. And so, you know, with that comes the ability to do things like hedging. It's, 
I wouldn't recommend hedging undeveloped minerals. There's uh, too much you don't control. But you know, once you've got that production, you know, if you bought it at the right price, it makes sense to really try to mitigate that commodity price risk. And one other thing too on the you know your banking finance background is bringing debt into the transactions. And um, is that something you guys have, have looked to leverage? I know the more developed it is, you, you can start to layer that in that bolsters returns a bit, but also in terms of dry powder, you can you can get more more done on the transaction size without drawing down all your equity in one go, right? And I know Texas Capital Bank has been you know, kind of a leader and a very active player. There's others kind of mid and lower end of the market that look to supplement different sizes. And there's other banks too who are trying to get involved because minerals proved you, they weathered the storm quite well uh, through a, a COVID year, for instance. So any small comments, whenever I have finance bankers, you know, finance slash banking backgrounds onto the podcast, you know, Jimmy Murchison at Hatch, he was a both a commercial banker and a, an advisor in the banking space. So we talked about the role of debt in the mineral space quite a bit, but would love any two cents you have to add around debt in the role of transactions for minerals. Yeah. So, you know, in my time, I've seen a lot of low risk oil and gas strategies employ a lot of leverage and turn low risk into high risk. So, you know, an important thing about how we approach this is, you know, what we are buying and develop minerals, that is a low risk strategy. And, you know, we've committed to our investors that we're not going to, you know, turn that into a high risk strategy by adding a lot of leverage. So, you know, from my perspective, everything we do needs to stand on its own as, you know, an equity funded transaction. That said, just, you know, to manage working capital appropriately and to provide, you know, a little bit more dry powder, there's certainly room for a bank facility in what we're doing. And we recently put one in place with Texas Capital, who I've worked with for a long time, uh, dating back to my IOG days, and uh, they've been great partners. Some of the, the names have changed there, but that's been a great bank in terms of their understanding of the oil and gas space. And, you know, more recently, they're understanding the mineral space and, you know, what makes sense in terms of how you structure those financings. So, but, you know, by and large, for what we're doing, trying to keep risk as low as possible, you know, on, on all axes, you know, leverage is just not a big part of it. Okay. Well, excellent. Listen, Charlie, thanks for, for walking through all that. And it was, it was great to have you on. I'll give you the floor. If there's any closing messages you want to have people think about when you they think about Elk Range royalties, over to you uh, to close out the episode. All right. Well, Tim, thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, look, we have, we've been busy last year. We bought a lot of stuff, but you know, we're open for business. We've got a lot of dry powder, you know, great team ready to roll up our sleeves on more transactions. So hope there's folks out there listening to this who've got things they're looking to sell. You know, we're, we're spending time in the Permian and the DJ and the Anadarko and the Eagleford. So very active out there and I look forward to looking at more. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. All right, Charles. Thanks again for coming on. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. 
Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.